Okay, well, we'll go ahead and uh, continue uh, in our series. And got the title slide up here for the whole series. So we're in a 40-point uh, overview of the Bible. And it's been here for a while, so it's good to have Slava back from Russia. Um, he's probably saying, oh, they were in that when I was here last, <laughs> which I think we probably were. I don't actually remember. Yeah, is that right? Okay, yeah. So he's like, huh, he's slow moving. When's he going to get this thing done? <laughs> well, we are on points 38 and 39 of 40, so we are making progress. And so we're getting close to being done uh, with it. Uh, sometimes I've hit a bunch of the points all in one Sunday. And then sometimes, like point number 38 here, this will be the third Sunday on just the one point. Um, but I found uh, when you're going through that many books of the Bible, even though I'm doing a, a kind of a summary of them, I'm doing an overview, I found it kind of hard to, to hit them all in one week. Um, so we'll be on point 38 today, the Pauline epistles, but there's actually only one epistle. Remember, the word epistle is just a letter. So there's uh, one letter uh, that we have left of the Pauline epistles. And then we'll go to a section uh, called the general epistles. Uh, in fact, let me go to my, <coughs> as I say, my next slide, but there's my general slide for the Pauline epistles. But I'm going to go back and to this slide entitled New Testament epistles with this 949 pattern. Uh, that's you know, a pattern that I think, um, if I remember right, commentator John Phillips is the one where, where he proposes that. But he does admit in that uh, pattern, if you go down to the bottom of it, Revelation isn't really epistle, so he says, well, it's just for memorization purposes that you know, kind of have that 949 might help you remember the, the books of the Bible. Um, but uh, we had the, the nine church epistles, and again, we, we call them that. The Bible doesn't identify them or group them this way, but we call them that because they're written to churches. And then four epistles that are written to individuals, um, three of them being pastoral epistles, and then the book of Philemon, not written to a pastor, but to a friend of Paul's that we'll look at today. And then we're going to go into point 39 after that, which are the general epistles. Um, Revelation, though, isn't really a, an epistle, so again, that was just for memorization purposes. We could lump it in there. And then as one commentator mentioned, Hebrews... Is it, does it make sense to call that a general epistle? Maybe not, because uh, they make the point that Hebrews, um, the, the writer of Hebrews, which we'll talk about later, is probably writing this to a specific group of Hebrews, not, not to Hebrews in general. So we use the word general epistle, like generally to the church. Uh, but maybe Hebrews is more specific than that. At, at the time, it was not generally to all the Hebrews, but maybe to a specific group of Hebrews. Um, all right, well, anyways, again, this is not a God-inspired 949 pattern. This is just for memorization purposes. It could be helpful. All right, so let's go uh, to the book of uh, Philemon, and we'll finish off the Pauline epistles, the, the letters written by Paul. And so I'm uh, thankful for the scriptures. One of the things that is great about the scriptures is God gives us a handbook for life how to live life successfully, specifically how to live the Christian life uh, successfully. Um, one spot Paul tells Timothy that 
talks about the scriptures that are able to make uh, one wise unto salvation. And so that's, of course, one way that the scriptures can be very helpful. How can we be right with God? Like when we die, I mean, all of us are going to die someday. Life's going to get over with quick. I think I got a feeling most people understand that. And maybe there's a few younger kids that maybe don't get the sense of that yet. But I remember when I was a kid, I would hear older people talk about life going by quick. And I accepted that as a kid by faith. Um, I just trusted that that was, you know, that's the way it seemed. But when you're a child, sometimes things go by slowly. So I remember it felt like, uh, to, to me personally, it felt like life went by slow until the end of high school. And then after high school, um, it felt, you know, best image I can come up with personally is it's like putting on a pair of rollerblades and then someone puts a rocket pack on your back and, and you don't have a way of stopping. So it's just <laughs> flying along. My kids are all grown, so that went by quick. Um, and so, um, such is life. Um, life is but a vapor. That was another reason I accepted my faith. The Bible said so. Uh, life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so, life, life can uh, go by quick. I'm, I'm sure glad that God, in this brief life that we have, doesn't leave us without guidance and wisdom that we can uh, look to. Um, so, um, I'm glad for the, the instruction that we have in the Word of God. And so, uh, that's a side note. It doesn't have to do with Philemon here. But I'm just, um, that's one of the thoughts that's always in my mind, that I'm happy to be able to share the Word of God in Sunday school because it's important. It actually matters. And so, in the book of Philemon, uh, we'll go through some of the, the points here. Um, so, the purpose of the book, intercede on behalf of Onesimus. There's probably um, less depth to the book of Philemon than some other books. Um, um, so, it's not a, a great theological work with these deep uh, truths. Not that uh, different theologies or teachings of Scripture uh, come up in it. Okay, but uh, the main purpose of the book was he was writing to a man named Philemon. That's the name of the book written by the Apostle Paul. And he was writing on behalf of a man named Onesimus. Um, it's about a specific problem that results, which I'll describe in a little bit. But therefore, the theme, there's not really a theme to the book. Uh, it's not talking about any particular teaching or doctrine other than um, the, the theme of Perhaps you could say the theme of, hey, Philemon, owner of Onesimus, yes, slave-master relationship, would you take back your wayward slave and treat him well? So if there was a theme to anything, I guess it would be that, uh, but not a really theological uh, theme uh, to that. And so if we were to look at the outline of the book, perhaps we would uh, point out um, that Thanksgiving and prayer um, are themes of it. And then Paul has this request of Philemon. And so Paul had, at the time of the writing of this, had been under house arrest in Rome. And so um, when we look at the, like, maybe a place and date, he's writing from the city of Rome, and it's when he's in prison there uh, that he writes to his friend uh, Philemon. Um, Philemon chapter 1, verse 10 well, there's only one chapter in Philemon, so it's a very short uh, book. But here's uh, some of the information that we get in there. He says in verse 10, I beseech or beg of you, I ask of you, uh, on behalf of my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Okay, so 
it would appear that Onesimus had become a Christian and led to the Lord probably by the Apostle Paul, or at least under Paul's preaching, had become a Christian. And so in times past, verse 11, Onesimus hadn't been a great slave. You know, slaves, um, and we're not going to get into, you know, the... You know, the topic of slavery much this morning. I'm just guessing we're probably substantially on the same page as far as our thoughts about uh, the merits of slavery, which there aren't, <laughs> aren't any. Uh, one group of people taking advantage of another for their own benefit is basically the root of it. Um, but here, uh, slaves, like other types of employees, you've got people that do their job well and you've got people that don't. You've got people that goof off at work on the on the company time, and you got those that actually get the job done. And so Onesimus uh, says there in verse 11, he had been an unprofitable um, worker as a slave. Um, he had not done his master well. Uh, but Paul says now things have changed, and he has, you know, so he's profitable. He says he's profitable to me, but he's going to be profitable to you. And so basically he's trying to talk uh, Philemon into taking Onesimus back. So Onesimus uh, apparently had run away uh, from his master. Now, wouldn't be surprising if when he ran away, he stole things um, when he ran away. So trying to grab some money and things to live off of as he fled his master. And we're not given a lot of information. Uh, why did he flee his master? And, you know, there's all kinds of potential reasons why uh, someone would want to flee their master, uh, much like there's all kinds of reasons why someone might want to quit their job. And so uh, Paul is making, again, the case to take him back. Uh, but he makes the case in verse 16, uh, now, not now as a servant, so I'm not asking you to take him back as a slave, which is what the word servant refers to there, but beyond that, above that, uh, take him back as a brother in Christ, and and so um, I thought, um, I think it's kind of uh, funny. Um, Paul does this in a couple spots in his uh, letters. Um, but he kind of says, well, I won't, I won't really mention how that maybe you owe me one. And that's my own paraphrase on that. Um, I also think that's funny when someone says, I'm not going to mention this. Well, wait, you just mentioned it. <laughs> um, but uh, apparently Philemon and Paul had a close relationship, and so we don't know uh, whether Philemon uh, took back Onesimus or not. Uh, but again, the, the things that we can learn from this uh, book, we uh, learn a little bit uh, from the book, uh, perhaps about how to treat you know, uh, other people, how to treat someone who's a brother or sister in Christ, uh, perhaps a little bit about... Um, different relationships in society, like you know, how, like for example, a slave master obviously is the direct one. But I don't know, maybe how to treat someone if you're under a boss or if a boss, if you're over someone as as someone in authority. You know, the, these are all applications potentially. Um, the book itself doesn't touch on those issues, even maybe like a parent-child relationship or a child-to-a-parent relationship. Um, and uh, so, for example, I could, you know, I could take parts of what he says to Philemon about taking back Onesimus and treating him as a brother in Christ. I could take that and apply it to um, a parent-child relationship, as I would remind myself occasionally with, 
with my children. I didn't really own them. They weren't my little slaves. They, they were, I was a custodian uh, during the time of their upbringing and had a certain amount of time uh, to influence them and, and help them. And, uh, and then, um, you know, now they're adults, so I don't have that same relationship uh, with them anymore overseeing them, but even as an overseer, um, looking at them not as someone to use, like a, a master might do with a slave, but as someone who had value in and of themselves. And so Paul seems to be touching on that. All right, we won't spend a lot more time on that. If anyone has any comments or questions, uh, feel free to jump in. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great thought. What's that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great thought and a great parallel there. Yeah. Well, we know uh, Paul definitely viewed himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, and you know, so should be our attitude as we've seen in, in a number of Paul's teachings. Okay. Any other thoughts? Okay. So, whoop, I guess I didn't realize I'd ever put that word request up there. I mentioned it, but there it is. You felt the lesson was incomplete until I put that up. Okay, so now we um, hop over to the general epistles. And we'll go ahead and do them in the order that they appear in the Bible. So the book of Hebrews first, followed by the book of James. Um, one um, source I had um, discussed them in reverse order just by the date that they were likely written. And so um, it's possible, though we don't know, that the book of James was written uh, as one of the earliest writings of the New Testament um, and written before the book of Hebrews, uh, but we'll come back to that. But we'll do them in the order that the Bible has them in. So we'll go to the book of Hebrews first. So um, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you uh, probably are familiar with the uncertainty that exists around the authorship of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews does not identify, the writer does not identify who he is. And some possibilities that have been suggested are Paul, Luke. Of course, Luke wrote a couple of books of the Bible, the book of Luke and Acts. Uh, Barnabas, uh, we don't have knowledge of him writing any of the other books, but possibly this one, possibly Silas, Philip, or Apollos was discussed in the book of Acts. Um, so Paul historically has received the most support in this. I don't think this, there's any way to end this debate. Has anyone done their own research? You've ended the debate. You, you now can definitively tell us what the answer is. 
Okay, no one has been able to. Okay, I didn't figure. Church, throughout church history, we've never ended the debate. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't those that feel strongly about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, I myself, on issues like that, I, I don't put a lot of thought or a lot of time and effort into it. Um, I kind of figure if that was real important for us to have a definitive answer on, God would have uh, inspired this writer to put his name in there. Um, so I'm not that interested in spending a lot of time on it, but still as kind of some side things. It can have some side interest uh, to it, or there might be a little bit of merit uh, to, to make mention of it. Um, here's what one of my sources says. There is both external and internal evidence that connects the letter to Paul, but many scholars are absolutely against Pauline authorship. Now, church history, probably the majority of people have, have leaned towards Paul. Uh, but he's pointing out there are some people that are absolutely against Pauline authorship. Now, again, my, my take on it is I don't know what the point is on getting dogmatic on it or, <laughs> or spending a lot of time trying to figure it out. Um, unless someone just, that's their hobby. So if, instead of you know, knitting sweaters and crocheting but, you know, things and weaving baskets, this is what you want to do with your spare time, then I guess that's fine. <laughs> um, but he goes on to say those that are uh, opposed to it, he says they do so noting that the vocabulary, the writing style, and the anonymous nature of the letter stand firmly against Pauline authorship. Well, um, you know, if you're familiar with someone's writing style and the types of words they tend to use, yeah, those can be ways to identify that, although, um, you know, there's some possible reasons why it could be different in writing style and vocabulary. I suppose that one could intentionally write in a different style or maybe... You know, I, I've done that before. Um, I do it more verbally, but when, when as a teacher, I'm speaking, sometimes I've, I have conf, conferences with someone that doesn't speak English really well. I try to choose my words that I use uh, more carefully. I try to use more common, simpler words when I'm speaking to them uh, rather than more complex English words. Uh, you know, so... I suppose one could do that. Maybe could that be speculation? Who knows? Um, maybe um, we also have uh, reason to understand from other of Paul's letters that Paul wasn't always the one who actually physically wrote the letter out, but he had someone who acted almost like a secretary, who maybe he dictated uh, one of his letters to, and they wrote it out. I mean, might might this be someone? who wrote it for Paul and maybe used some of their own vocabulary, paraphrase, or things like that. I don't know. Again, we're back to speculation. But uh, some are adamantly opposed to it because they think that it doesn't really sound like one of Paul's letters. And uh, Paul usually, on all the other ones, he, he puts his name down. He doesn't hear. So, okay. That that uh, would make sense. Uh, those, those are reasonable arguments against uh, Paul being the author. Uh, this particular source says... It is probably best, now this is just his own view, so there's nothing uh, super authoritative about this, but it is probably best to conclude that Hebrews is not the work of the Apostle Paul himself, but that someone within the Pauline circle of influence wrote it. Okay. Uh, like someone who was around Paul a lot and kind of 
was taught by Paul, therefore it kind of feels like Paul in some senses. I don't know. Um, I always kind of just think of Paul myself, but um, that's about all I think I want to spend the time on uh, contemplating the issue. I did notice in my online, which is uh, eSword um, Bible, uh, when I was looking at the, the King James Version, at the end of the book of Hebrews, it says, written by, written from Rome by Timothy. And I kind of looked at that and said, oh, wonder how they know that. <laughs> okay, interesting thought, as, as if that was kind of known to be definitely the case. Um, well, there, th- there's possibly some reasons right there at the end of the book of Hebrews to connect Timothy maybe to it in some ways, but uh, I, don't, I think it's less certain uh, whether, if it was Timothy, whether he was in Rome when he did it. And that goes to our next point. Uh, here, where was it written? Was it was it written in Rome? Uh, when was it written? Well, as I put on here, um, we don't really know where that is. Uh, so, the same source I already read from says that uh, this that there are some uh, that think that the phrase in chapter thirteen, verse twenty four, that says "those from Italy greet you" suggests that Rome is the place where it was written. Okay, while others believe that phrase is better interpreted that the author was surrounded by Italian believers who were sending their greetings to the believers in Rome. So maybe when it says those uh, from Italy greet you, maybe it's writing to the people in Italy and say, hey, got got some Italian believers here that are sending their greetings to you. So again, it's not very definitive on that. <clears throat> okay, but... Um, Likely the letter was written before A.D. 70 because there's a lot of discussion in the book of Hebrews on uh, the temple or the sacrificial system. And there's no reference in the book uh, to the temple being destroyed and it was destroyed in A.D. 70. So probably it's written before then. Uh, so one, one source says, well, they, they think probably around A.D. 65. Again, these are um, not certain dates, but perhaps, uh, you know, the most likely dates on that. All right, uh, so then we'll go to uh, the purpose of the book, and this starts to get into the more of the meat of the things. God gave us the book of Hebrews for a reason, and academic debates about when and where it was written is not really the point, I don't believe. Uh, the purpose of the book is to encourage believers to stay committed uh, to their faith. It is written to Hebrews, so Jews, Specifically, it's written to Hebrew believers, uh, so those that are genuine believers, not just professing uh, believers, but genuine Hebrew Christians. Um, apparently, uh, what seems to be the case is the Hebrew Christians were the type of uh, Christians that had a genuine uh, conversion, uh, faith in Christ, had lived that faith, um, had uh, undergone perhaps some persecution, uh, but now were kind of getting a little lethargic. Uh, they were maybe, you could say, on the verge of growing cold in their faith and perhaps slipping backwards into um, kind of the law of Moses and uh, Judaism. Uh, one source suggests that perhaps that might be because at that time Judaism would have uh, provided some protections from persecution because it was an officially sanctioned religion in the Roman Empire, whereas Christianity was not. 
and this is not that far uh, from uh, kind of around the time of the persecutions of Nero. And so maybe, um, whatever the case is, the topics that are being addressed, I mean, oftentimes you don't address a topic uh, unless there's a problem. Now you can if you're trying to be proactive, but some of the things that are discussed in there, in here seem to be uh, guarding against slipping back into Judaism and back into the works of the law, the, maybe the temptation for them, having grown up in Judaism, maybe slipping back into some of the errors of the Judaizers. Okay. Um, under uh, special considerations uh, in this, um, I think I might have discussed uh, some of these points already with the, the writer of the Hebrews. Um, but uh, one of the points that um, I may not have mentioned, he seemed to have known this group. Well, I kind of hinted at it. He, he seems to have known them personally. For example, in Hebrews thirteen eighteen, he says, Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, living, uh, willing to live honestly. Uh, so he's asking them specifically to pray for him. And in verse 19 of chapter 13, but I beseech you the rather to do this, that if I may be restored to you the sooner. So he seems to have some sort of personal relationship. Again, it's not just the Hebrews in general um, at the time of the writing. Um, but of course, now it's generally for the church of God. And so, um, so that would be one uh, you know, special consideration. Um, and as I, and I mentioned before, it's probably to genuine Hebrew believers. So it's written to Christians. And then another uh, special consideration of the book is that there are a number of warnings uh, in the book. Uh, one um, commentator uh, summarizes that thought this way. Warnings are directed at true believers in the context of this book. The focus of these warnings is not on the matter of justification, eternal security, or the loss of salvation. Now, the reason that's pointed out is that has been a, uh, debate, I guess, uh, amongst Christians throughout the centuries. Uh, per, uh, I mean, it sounds like it's been a debate on the book of Hebrews, but we know it's been a debate throughout the centuries, and that is this. You might summarize it this way, Calvinist versus Arminian. Okay? And so that's been that ongoing back and forth uh, struggle amongst Christians over the years. And uh, this author is pointing out that the warnings here are not really focusing on justification or eternal security, um, but focusing on, and I'll quote here, rather is em it emphasizes the matters of rewards and the need to faithfully endure in order to receive uh, the rewards when Messiah, the king, uh, king priest Jesus, comes and sets up his kingdom. And so some of the things that are taught in the book of Hebrews are not intended to be applied uh, to whether we're talking about salvation or not uh, when it's discussing uh, various topics. But really, um, it's back to that theme. Hey, Christian, you need to be faithful in what you're doing, not because we're worried about you losing your salvation by going back into Judaism. That's not the point. It's not a topic of salvation. But because you're going to lose some rewards, you're going to lose blessings in this life and the life to come. So stay faithful to God in what you're doing. And don't get sidetracked and don't get lethargic. And so that's a major theme uh, that's there. 
And so, of course, when we uh, read the scriptures, we want to be careful about uh, properly understanding the, uh, the scriptures, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that we uh, study proved workmen, not ashamed, because we rightly divided the word of truth. And so, all right, uh, so then I'll go to um, our next slide here. Um, Hebrews summary has four points, and since we're not doing a, an exhaustive study of the book of Hebrews, I'm not going to attempt to go over uh, the four points here. Um, but the author of the book of Hebrews, as we mentioned, has warnings for believers of the consequences if they depart from that, what you could describe as that new covenant. Don't go back into the old covenant. Stick with that new covenant that has to do with Jesus. And as I mentioned, they face the loss of reward uh, because of that. Points um, out in some cases maybe even premature death in this life. And so, as I mentioned, he challenges them to stay uh, true to that covenant. And as he does so, he, he encourages them by refocusing on Christ. So those first three points are that way, uh, pointing out that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels and to Moses and to Aaron. He is our mediator, Christ Jesus, the mediator between God and men, and that the new covenant is better than the old covenant, and that they should not walk away from the new covenant, but stay faithful. And so he reminds them that there's reward. The Bible tells us, don't be weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. That's not... Uh, here in the book of Hebrews, I don't believe that just popped in my head right now, so I didn't look up that reference, but I believe that's not in Hebrews, but it carries that uh, same idea there. Okay, any thoughts uh, from you um, on the book of Hebrews, questions uh, before we take a look at the book of James? Yes. Would you like to read them? Sure. You'd be welcome to. Perfect Lamb of God, right? He was able to resist the temptations without sin. Of course, it reminds me that the temptation's not the sin, but it's that giving in. And of course, the temptation is always, isn't always a temptation just to simply sin. Um, like Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, he was tempted to eat, which is not a sinful activity, but Satan tried to get him to eat in an inappropriate fashion, not eat to the glory of God, as Corinthians tells us to do. But anyways, all right. Okay, thank you. Any other thoughts on Hebrews? Okay. So now I come to our next book, the book of James. I like the book of James a lot. The Bible mentions in one spot that it's enough that a pupil be like their teacher. I know Pastor Dean liked the book of James a lot. 
And so he's one of my biggest teachers or influence. I wonder if that's why I like the book of James. I really think about that till right now. Maybe he just influenced me. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that may be, I was thought I like the book of James mainly because I just like the teachings of James, but maybe Pastor Dean's the culprit. I don't know. Um, but we'll go into kind of an introduction of the book of James and then uh, take a look at some of the material, but I'm, I'm more tempted to talk about the book of James uh, as much as any of the other books that we've uh, covered. I'll try to resist a little bit because we're trying to do this in a summary, uh, kind of an overview. Uh, but the author of the book of James is likely James, the brother of Jesus. Now, uh, we don't know this for sure because the, the author just identifies himself uh, as James. And just identifying himself as James, there's more than one James that's mentioned in the Bible. And of course, it doesn't guarantee that it has to be one of the Jameses that's mentioned somewhere else in the Bible. It could be someone else named James. Um, but I think the uh, church history uh, attributes this to James, the brother of Jesus Christ. That's one reason. Uh, to go with that. Now, James, I'm sorry, Jesus had four half-brothers, and James is one of the half-brothers. I'm trying to remember the others. James, Simon, Judas, I'm forgetting the fourth one. Um, so there's four brothers of Jesus Christ that are named. And in the, in the lifetime of Jesus, uh, when he was here on earth, uh, they did not believe in him. Um, I'll, um, I'll come back to that, maybe mention a little bit more in just a moment. But what about the other Jameses? You have James, the brother of John. Well, likely he's not that because he was martyred pretty early on. And so the, the, the authorship, in fact, I'm going to put up the next uh, point here with the place and date. Um, it's likely authored around AD 45. Well, James, the brother of John, was martyred a little bit before that, um, perhaps around A.D. 44. Now, these dates aren't real certain, so I guess that doesn't prove anything. But Maybe it was James, the brother of John, but uh, people think likely not uh, for that uh, reason. Uh, you had other ones like James, the son of Alphaeus, um, as a possibility, um, and that, you know, that, that's a maybe, but most go with James. Um, uh, James... Uh, assuming that is correct, and assuming we understand who the Jameses are in certain other passages of Scripture, um, specifically, well, let me actually, let me see where I have this at. Yeah, actually, I'll save this for a little bit. I was about ready to get ahead of myself under the section called Special Considerations. I'll come back uh, to that idea. Uh, but um, let's, you know, we'll just, at this point, um, the best thought is that it's James, the brother of Jesus, um, who, again, likely was not a believer during the time of Christ, uh, perhaps became a believer when Jesus appeared to many people after his resurrection. Um, we um, know him to be a leader in the early church, and I'll come back and share more thoughts about that in a little bit. As far as the, the place and date is concerned, uh, one commentator says it seems best to date this letter around A.D. 45, making it the first New Testament book written. The letter is distinctly Jewish, which would fit the early days of the church when very few Gentiles were part of it. The sins condemned in the epistle are those characteristic of early Jewish Christians. Also, the book reflects the era before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. That's when they were trying to decide an issue there. It's recorded for us in the book of Acts chapter 15. 
So the, the types of things that they were, you know, the tone, what the topic seemed to fit the way the church was before they wrestled with that issue regarding uh, bringing Gentiles in. Okay. So they say, if this early date is accurate, notice the word if, we don't know for sure, then it was most likely penned in Jerusalem because that's where the early church was congregating and, and focused on before they were scattered by persecution and before the missionary journeys of Paul. So that's some of the reasoning why they think probably around uh, AD 45, but again, it's not certain. Okay. And so um, the purpose of the book, remind believers that genuine faith is more than mere mental acceptance. And of course, uh, the, the whole Bible is written by God. It's, God has directed, he's moved people to write what he's written. And so we get a consistent theme in scripture on topics. And uh, we get this consistent theme in scripture that it's not just, uh, you know, I, I just... Uh, mentally agree that something's true that there's something more than that of course uh, that i guess mental agreement would go be a little bit beyond just verbal agreement i can say something and not really mean it but then i can mean it but not really have faith in it um, so i believe in george washington how about you i don't believe in him for salvation i have no dependence upon him for anything but i do believe that he existed um, i have mental I have a mental agreement to certain facts, but there's not a faith or dependence on him, which is the Bible meaning of faith. And so just mere mental um, acknowledgement of who Jesus is or what he did, James is saying there's got to be something more than that. And so that's one of the uh, kind of the purposes or themes of the book that um, believers are something more. If you can have genuine faith, there's going to be more than you just agree to things mentally. And so, therefore, the, the theme is the necessity of living faith and that we have a faith that's actually alive and real. And I sometimes have that thought just in my own mind. I think, you know, I, I want to be genuine in, in what I am saying. I don't want to just say things because other people said them before me. I just kind of parrot them back. Um, I, I want to have a genuine faith. I don't, like when I teach, I don't want to teach things I don't really believe. A little side note, something that's puzzled me, how quickly in public education they've been willing to um, teach, change what they teach kids on gender identity issues. Like all of a sudden, as was the case, I might have mentioned this example before, a family that um, at the beginning of the school year did not re-enroll their first grade daughter in our school and re-enrolled them in another school. And they had some kind of, I suppose you could say, cute reasons for doing that because they, they were in a new neighborhood where the, the, the school was just down the street and their daughter had made some friends in the neighborhood and they thought, that, well, that'd be really kind of a, a nice thing to do where our daughter can just walk to school with her friends and it's right here and um, but uh, I guess quickly they started having some problems, um, so they only kept her there in the school for a few weeks. And one of the issues that came up is the daughter came home and just asked her mom, Mommy, am I going to always be a girl? And so right there in young grades they're teaching that, that, that you have options, that you don't have to stay a girl if you don't want to. Um, and what I wondered about that is, wait a minute, did... For many, many years, teachers weren't teaching that. Do they have any core values? Do, 
did someone just come to them and say, now teach this? Oh, okay. Is it just a paycheck? Is it, is it not matter to them what they're teaching the kids? They can just switch their core values. Maybe they don't have core values. You just switch what you teach. All of a sudden, you teach kids this. When for your, I'm thinking of older teachers, especially if you're 60 years old and teaching for years, and all of a sudden, you just someone tells you, now start teaching this, you just switch that quickly. Um, well, hopefully, our, our faith in, in God is, is rooted in something with more core values than that. And, and uh, that's something I desire is that, you know, that I have core values that, that back the things that I believe. And I have good reasons for them and not just switch super quickly. All right, I digress there a little bit. Uh, but we need to live a faith that is going to be a genuine faith, uh, not mere acceptance, but something more genuine than that. Okay, so some special uh, considerations uh, in the book of James. Um, the, regarding the author, um, so I, I mentioned a few of these ideas, but um, such as he was, uh, James was probably not a believer during the time of Jesus' ministry. We don't actually know when he came to know Christ, but probably not by the time of his death. Uh, so mentioned uh, some ideas possibly when he converted um, after that. But we do read, uh, for example, and there's a couple spots where I think uh, he's referenced, but in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, Paul says this, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Well, that probably goes back uh, to that Jerusalem council. We see in Acts chapter 15, at some point in the debate, James gets up and speaks and has some thoughts regarding the bringing in of Gentiles into the church, uh, which he perceives and understands from the scripture that that is the right thing to do, that the scriptures actually uh, do in the Old Testament hint at that. Um, and so one, uh, actually more than one commentator I noticed on Galatians 2.9 says something along these lines in that in Galatians 2.9 when it says James, Cephas, and John, he says uh, the fact that James was placed first uh, in, in that order there, even before Peter, suggests that he was the pastor. He was the bishop, uh, as the commentator put it, the bishop of Jerusalem. Of course, uh, I'm not sure of all our understandings of, of the word bishop, but I know historically, um, at least in our circles, what we understand about that is just another name for a pastor. A uh, bishop in the New Testament came from a Greek word that meant an overseer or one who administrates, so it highlights the administrative uh, side of pastoral ministry, uh, such as when we get together, uh, the deacons get together this coming Tuesday for a school board meeting. Pastor will be part of that because he's, He's helping to oversee or administrate the different ministries of the church, which includes uh, the school. And so, therefore, um, uh, the commentators say, well, he's probably likely the bishop of Rome. But for some, if they read that, that would conjure up the ideas of maybe the, um, you know, the hierarchy that exists in certain circles, such as Roman Catholicism, where you, you have all these levels of uh, bishops and archbishops and going down to your local parish with your, your priest and so forth. Um, all right, well, uh, point being this, 
James is um, thought of often as probably the pastor, the, the lead pastor there at the church in Jerusalem. And so probably was one who was helping to preside over that Jerusalem council where they were debating uh, what should be done about uh, the Gentiles and try to come to right conclusions on that. And, um, and also, as it says there in Galatians 2.9, recognize that he and Cephas and John were going to be focusing on their ministry to the Jews, but Paul was going to be going out and his ministry was going to be, as uh, at least in this translation, as it's word, he was going to go out to the heathen, or in other words, the non-Jews. There, it doesn't have, heathen can have kind of a derogatory sound. You heathen, okay, well, I mean, they were heathen, but um, not in that sense, but more like the non-Jews uh, while they stayed and ministered to the Jews. All right, um, let's see. Okay, so I think I'll go to our next slide then, and a summary of the book of James. And in fact, I think I meant, I want to put up all four points here. Okay, so I'm going to go to the slide that shows all four. Because um, we're, again, we're not going to do a, an exhaustive study in this, but I would like to highlight a few of the things uh, from the book of James. What we can see in this summary here where they're talking about and just the different trials that believers are going through and how they need to have a genuine uh, faith and overcome these obstacles as, as they're uh, doing so. And so here's a couple of verses that just I picked to highlight out of the book. Uh, James 1.5 If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Uh, I happen to be reading out of the, the King James on that, but I'll uh, paraphrase here. I like the word upbraideth not. Now, as a modern-day English speaker, that's always a confusing word to me. Um, I've had to look at that a number of times over the year, just try to get my head on that. So sometimes uh, the King James can be that way. Um, are any of you looking at a non-King James? Tell me, the, it doesn't use upbraideth not. Probably uses word starts with a C-H, I'm guessing. No, what does it do? Without reproach, okay. So I was thinking of either the word chastise or chide. Yeah, he, uh, he, uh, he doesn't chide you for it. He doesn't, you're not going to have reproach. You're not going to be scolded by God for it. So if I paraphrase, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives it freely. And he doesn't reprimand you, chastise you uh, for asking for it. Um, God wants us to ask for wisdom. So do you not know, not know what to do in life? Ask God. So that, that to me, I just like that verse, it, um, that we can go to God for wisdom and he's happy to hear us come to him. We're not bugging him. Uh, but then we go down to chapter 1, verse 22, and there's some verses here. Uh, one of the major teachings in the book of James, to be doers of the word, so that genuine faith. Be doers, don't just be hearers of the word. I'll just listen to the word of God, but say, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, deceiving your own selves. So a lot of the deceit there, I think, well, first of all, it's interesting that you can deceive yourself. You ever lied to yourself? Yeah. You told yourself something that at first you thought was true, and then you realize that's not true. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting thought. You would think, just kind of um, logically speaking, you'd think that you would be the one person that wouldn't fall for your own lie, because you would think that you know you're telling a lie. But we don't, we don't always see that we're telling a lie. 
um, and we say things that aren't true. And um, I've got a, a student in, in our school right now that sometimes just blurts out something that isn't true. And I don't know if he always thinks about it. Um, I, he wasn't using his time wisely in the study hall. I said, are you getting all your homework turned in? And he said, yes. I'm the teacher. I know what. <laughs> He's not getting half of his homework turned in. You're going to tell me? I mean, I know that that, okay. But, so, but I've caught myself doing things like that. I don't know if he really believes that, or did he think I was, I mean, does he think I'm that stupid? that I'm not going to realize whether he's turning all the homework in? I mean, why say that to me? You're not going to get away with it with me. I don't understand. But, but don't we sometimes do that? We tell ourselves lies, deceive ourselves. And one way we can deceive ourselves is when we think that maybe we come to church right now, and we heard the word of God, oh good, I'm a good Christian, I did what I'm supposed to do, I read the Bible, I, I heard what it had to say, but then we don't do it. Maybe we're deceiving ourselves, thinking everything's okay, I'm on the right uh, track. Um, if you, verse 23, if you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're like a person looking into a mirror. And you look at yourself, verse 24, you see there's a problem. You probably saw a problem this morning when you got up, with your hair sticking up. Little crusties in the corner of your eye, I don't know. And if you looked and saw a problem, said, okay, I see what's going on, and then you walk away, you don't do anything about it, that's the uh, image that's being given here of someone that does the same thing with the Word of God. But, verse 25, the person who looks into the perfect law of liberty, so look into the Bible as if it's a mirror, as if it, it reflects to you and shows you what's wrong. And you continue, that is, you're faithful to follow the Bible's guidance, you continue in it, you, not a forgetful here, but an actual doer of the word, you're going to be blessed in what you do, in your deeds. And so you want the blessing of God, James is saying, this is what you need to do, listen to the word of God and actually do it. And I've heard from uh, pastors, it's been a little while since I heard this particular comment, but I've heard from pastors, uh, and I can totally imagine this is the case, one of the frustrations is to provide good counsel, biblical counsel, to people, and then they ignore it and don't do it. Like they come to the pastor and say, I don't know what to do here. The pastor says, here's, you know, here's some guidance. And then they walk away and don't do it. Um, but that's what, it, it's not a surprise, I suppose, because that's what James is addressing that people often do. They go to the Word of God, they hear what it says, they walk away, they do their own thing. And... Um, and so that kind of person is not going to be blessed by God, but the person who does what God says is the one who's going to be blessed. Because again, the Bible's given to us as a handbook for life on how to live life successfully. And so that's, you know, I mean, interesting thing is God doesn't make us. So we can do anything we want in life, but God tells us how to have his blessing. And so, but we can, uh, we can just be hearers only and not do it. Okay, uh, so then he goes on to say, if, and I, I wanted to read these last two verses because it, it brings uh, me to verse 27. It's just a verse that I've thought about a lot over the years. But I'll read verse 26 first. If any man among you seems to be religious, remember the kind of the theme here, like genuine believer versus someone who's just kind of going through the motions or just talking like they're a believer. So you, someone seems to be religious. They have that appearance of being religious, okay, but they bridle not his tongue, but, deceive that, but deceives his own heart. 
this man's religion is vain. So he's touching on true religion versus those that aren't really true religion. Um, we do read in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 this, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become new. Um, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty, by their fruits you shall know them. So here's what ends up happening is someone can talk like they know God, talk like they love God, but when their actions and their deeds counter that, it reveals the lack of genuineness. So in that, that specific example in verse 26, someone's tongue and what they're saying just reveal, okay, maybe they don't actually know God. They're deceiving themselves if they think they're a Christian. But verse 27 is the one that stood out to me because I want to have a genuine faith. I want to be genuinely a Christian, not just a Christian in appearance. And it catches my attention when it starts off and says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Like, wow, okay, oh, how does God say what pure religion, religion that's really truly what it should be, is like? To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I don't know if I'm stretching it too much to think of it this way, but it kind of reminds me of the, the two greatest commandments in the Bible. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Visit the fatherless and widows. Actually reach out and be loving your neighbor as yourself. And then keeping your un, yourself unspotted from the world that we could, we could have a relationship with God where we present our bodies a living sacrifice, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, holy you know, like separated from that which would spot us, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. So anyways, uh, verse 27 sometimes uh, stands out to me on that. And then uh, in chapter 2, mentions uh, in verse 14, what does it profit my brothers, brothers in Christ? Though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now, sometimes uh, people have had real issue with that verse, thinking, wait a minute, is it teaching salvation by works? But I think it goes back to that Second Corinthians passage I read, where if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become new. So you, what good does it do to say I'm a Christian and I have faith, but your life's not changed? I think that's really the point of James, that if you're really a Christian, Something's going to show. By their fruits ye shall know them, Jesus said. Okay? So I, I think, because uh, I don't have a lot of time here, I guess in my thoughts I would summarize this way by using that old saying, don't get the cart before the horse. Faith comes first, and right behind it are works, because you've been changed. Um, not the other way around, not I do good works, and then that produces the faith, and, and uh, makes me a Christian, but more... If I'm a genuine Christian, that's just going to be that way. But if there's not works, um, then James says it uh, this way. A man may say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Um, so James is saying you, you, genuine faith has works. I mean, there's, there's going to be something there that's a changed. Any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. And so that was one of the things that James was teaching as he was 
pastoring the church in Jerusalem, but there ought to be something genuine there.